Thank you. So you will notice that I have a cast. I broke my wrist uh, in uh, mid-January, and I wish I could say, someone said, just tell people you were smashing the patriarchy. <laughs> Nothing quite so glamorous. Uh, I was walking, I was at the World Economic Forum in, in uh, Switzerland. I was, it was seven o'clock in the morning, it was dark. Uh, I am walking down a hill just as I get to the bottom. I hit some ice and my legs go out from under me and I land uh, with my, on my arm and my wrist uh, and knew instantly something was terribly wrong. I mean, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a little break. It was a, a big break and my arm was not really functional and I was in great pain and they got me you know, it took about an hour and a half, finally to a hospital. And I will say, if you're going to break a bone, a ski town is a fine place to do it. <laughs> that, you know, that this was nothing new. They got me into x-ray. Uh, and then they, you know, put me back in the little cubicle. Uh, and again, you know, I'm, I'm in a foreign country. Uh, I didn't have any family with me. I wasn't traveling with anyone. I knew people at the World Economic Forum, but not anybody who was going to come hold my hand. And, um, you know, I, I'm disoriented and I'm in considerable pain. And the um, orthopedic surgeon comes in, and I have to say, with apologies to the men in the audience, he was a fairly stereotypical orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> he was a very macho guy. He said, he had, a, he had a plate in his wrist. He's telling me that they have to operate and put a plate in, in my wrist, which I'm quite frightened about. You know, I'm in a foreign country, and I've, I've been hurt, and I didn't expect any of this. And he says, no problem, I've got a plate in my wrist. And I thought, well, what kind of surgeon are you then? Like, what? <laughs> anyway. So he wants me to sign the paper, and I think, what am I supposed to do? I can't ask for a second opinion. I mean, I'm here, and he's here, and he's going to operate. So I sign it. But I'm, I really didn't want to go under general anesthetic. I thought, I'm just, I can't do this. I don't have anybody around me. I wanted my mom. Uh, but there was this moment where I thought, but I am a mom. You know, you, you got to be an adult here. Um, so I said, I'll have a local uh, instead of a, a, a general. Now, what that means is they dope you up, and they gave me music and other things, but they put a curtain. So I'm there, I'm conscious, and I can't see my arm. Indeed, I, I couldn't feel it at all. I thought my arm was still here, even after they're operating. I said to the nurse, have they started? She said, oh, yeah. They're... But so I, I couldn't see it. But I, I, I'm in surgery, I'm aware. So I'm not happy, right? My blood pressure must have been very high. I was still in pain. I was frightened. And then there was this woman on my right-hand side who sat there touching me. She was stroking my arm and telling me it was going to be okay. She's sort of talking through it. She told me what was happening when I asked her. But even when I didn't, she was there caring for me. And from my point of view, at that moment, her presence was every bit as important as his. I'm not saying that we should necessarily have paid her the same as him. He went through more training. He was a surgeon. He knew how to do various things. But I will say, probably from a medical point of view, it was very important because she was lowering my blood pressure and making me in a far better position to have the surgery. But more importantly than that, emotionally, she made all the difference. And then, 
about three-fourths of the way through, she says to me, I can't remember if it was German or English, but I understood her. She says, my kids have come home from school and I have to leave to give them lunch. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe this. I'm in surgery and somebody is telling me about a conflict between work and family. <laughs> and then I thought, there's no woman in the world who's more understanding than I am about that particular <laughs> issue. So I said, I said, yes, of course, I understand. Uh, and, and thought to myself, actually, the fact that she was a mother and going home to, to care for her children was part of what made her so good at what she was doing with me. She was caring for me. And she left, and, and a male nurse took over, uh, and he wasn't nearly as good, I have to, to confess. <laughs> now, till now, that sounds like a very gendered story, right? We have the, we have the male orthopedic surgeon, we have the female nurse, he's doing the surgery, she's caring... This sounds like the world many of us tried to escape. But I'm in Switzerland, uh, and if I'd been in the United States, they would have sent me home pretty much immediately, given the state of our healthcare system. But in Switzerland, they still believe in caring for you until you're, you can at least walk around. Uh, and <laughs> that meant I spent two days in hospital. So I was there for two days, and uh, at which point, you know, I, still I was by myself, but the nurses were wonderful. They were equal men and women. There were an equal number of male nurses and female nurses. And some of the male nurses were better than some of the female nurses. Some of the female nurses were very brisk in a kind of stereotypical Swiss way. Uh, and some of the male nurses were extremely empathetic and uh, helping me figure out what I had to do. Now, I would not have broken my wrist so I could tell you that story. But, given that I broke my wrist, that story highlights the two principal items of unfinished business that I want to talk to you about. And the unfinished business is the unfinished business of achieving genuine equality between men and women. That's how I think of what we are striving for. Genuine, full equality between men and women. And we've come a long way. We far farther than many of the younger women in this audience can probably imagine. But we've, we're not going to get there unless we make change that is as big and as radical as the change we've already made. And that has to be changed in two directions. And the first is we have to value care. We have to understand that what that nurse did and what she did when she went home to her children was every bit as important as what the surgeon did. That it's, it's actually simply part of basic human nature, right? I actually read this, surprisingly perhaps, in a quote from Bill Gates, who said, there are two basic forces in human nature, self-interest and caring for others. And that's true for either of us, all of us individually, the self-interest part, the part I think of as the competitive side, the part where we set our own goals and we strive to achieve them and we often strive against others and competition can be a very good thing. It does, in fact, often spur us to do our best. Uh, that that 
that's one side of who we are. Some of us are more competitive than others. I'm very competitive. Uh, I'm more competitive than my husband is, for sure, uh, just because that's how I was born. I didn't ask to be that way. So that's half of, of who we are and what we do. But equally, we are caring beings. Indeed, if you go back to the, to the sociology, to the anthropology, uh, to the paleontology, you, what you see is we would never have made it past the first saber-toothed tiger or whatever animal happened to be trying to eat us without being social animals, without caring for each other, without coming together in ways that allowed us to care for our children and our elders and our ill and disabled. That that, just as much as that competitive urge that led Virginia Woolf to write A Room of One's Own, right, where she says, you know, to write, a woman needs money in a room of her own, meaning she's got to be able to be in that competitive world. We need that, but we also need care. But when we liberated women, when we started in the second wave of feminism, but in the 60s and, and the 70s, we liberated women to be our fathers, which probably had to happen that way. Our fathers had the power and the money and they had opportunities that women didn't have. And so I grew up essentially believing, you know, to be a feminist was to be a woman who not only could just earn a living, but who was, you know, breaking the glass ceiling, who was valued for what she did that was like what men traditionally did. And along the way, we devalued all the work that women traditionally did. Right, so I would, I would have told you that my father was a lawyer and I'd have told you my mother was a professional artist and I would have told you all about her paintings and I'm very proud of all that. But I would not have told you she was a homemaker. But now I look at my parents, they're in their 80s. My father has represented people and stood up for principle and has had a, a good career. My mother paints, painted, paints, but she's also woven our family together. She raised three happy, productive children, all of whom are themselves contributing in various ways. But independent of what we do for a living, we are each other's foundation. I could have done none of the things that Anne just talked about without my family. And indeed, in Switzerland, the minute I called one family member, you know, the family grapevine went out and immediately my, you know, my brothers are calling, my sisters-in-laws are calling. Everybody is, is, is doing what we do because we are the foundation for each other in the same way that, that enables our work in the same way that our work, you know, provides for our family. And that didn't just happen. My that's my mother's work. She worked hard at it. She raised us and she invested in family. So it's the right thing to do. It's a core part of who we are. But along the way, as I said, we devalued care. So that now, if you're in a profession and you step back to care for your children, your elders, your spouse, your friend, your community members, and you suddenly say, well, I'm home caring for somebody, watch how fast you sink in the social estimation of the person you're talking to. And countless women who have been you know, high flyers in their careers step out and suddenly discover, in the words of one woman, I'm nobody. So we've got to revalue care as a fully equal and important part of who we are as human beings and what it takes for us to flourish. Now, the last thing I'll say is if we focus on care 
we also develop a far more inclusive feminism. Because when we focus on advancing women, which is the way it's normally framed, what we're focusing on inevitably is women at the top. It's just human nature. If you talk about advancing women, you want to know how many women CEOs there are, how many women politicians there are, how many women presidents or surgeons or whatever it is, because that's the whole idea. When we say advancing women, we think we want as many women at the top as we have men. And we have far too few women at the top, but we also have far too many women at the bottom. It's what I call an unlovely symmetry, the poorest members of our society. I know this to be true in the United States. I am betting it is true in Australia, but I don't know the, the figures as well. The poorest members of our society are women who simultaneously are expected to support their family with cash and with care. They are the people, we do not support their care. We expect them to work, but we do not support or value their care. And women often who are in the middle class, who get divorced, or who somehow otherwise lose another support, uh, uh, stream of support, quickly find themselves at the bottom. So if we talk about care, the policies we need to support care are policies that will actually help women who are poorer and who have less advantage more than women who are at the top. Women who are at the top tend to buy their way out of care issues. Right? We, we can afford to hire other women to take care of our children or our parents. Those other women, though, are disproportionately poor women just in the United States, women of color, and immigrant women. So valuing care actually is also about valuing carers, not just the woman who says, I'm stepping out to focus on my parents or my children or anyone else, but also the paid caregivers. And to say the work they do is important and needs to be valued and paid and professionalized uh, in ways uh, that ripple throughout the society. So that's the first thing we have to do, the, the first item of unfinished business. We have to value care, and we have to value care equally with competition. And we have to understand that for a human being to be whole, there should be both sides, and for a society to flourish, there need to be both activities. But that, you know, if we only do that for women, <laughs> we're going to go backwards, right? If you say, I'm going to value care, but women are the caregivers, well, very quickly you get back to, okay, so women should be back in the home. That should be what they do, because care is really important, and Women give care, so women should be giving care rather than earning an income. The only way to really get to equality is to value care when men do it just as much as when women do it. it but not just when they do it. We need to expect them to do it. This is the... <laughs> Okay. You're clapping now. You may change your tune in just a minute. But, <laughs> but, you know, we raise our daughters and we assume they will have caregiving obligations at some point. The, the, what women like me have done forever talking to younger women is to say, have you thought about how you're going to fit together work and family? Because I'm, I'm mentoring young women who want to be in my field of foreign policy, and I, if they 
plan to have a family, and if that happens, it's not a given by any means, and it's not a choice for, for, it's not something every woman chooses. But if they do, we immediately assume, of course, they're going to have caregiving obligations, and have they thought about how to fit it together? Why aren't we asking our sons exactly the same question? Why aren't we saying to all of our sons and all of the young men we mentor, well, you know, if you are planning to have a family, have you thought about how you are going to fit together the, whatever you're doing if, if professionally and the care of your children or your parents or anybody else? You, it, we can't have a halfway revolution. You can't say, you know, you once had women as caregivers and men as breadwinners. Then you said, okay, women can be breadwinners too. So women now get to do both. But for men we still completely expect that their primary role is breadwinner. Now, we do think they should help. Um, help, that's an interesting word. <laughs> help means you decide what needs to be done and he does it. <laughs> and that's not a quality either. As my husband finally said to me when we had this conversation, he finally said, you know, it, as, as my jobs got bigger, uh, he ended up doing more and more of what we call lead parenting. I was traveling, he was at home. He, by default, was the parent who was filling out the school forms or, uh, you know, showing up at the school meetings or driving the children wherever. The sort of thing we'd once done together, but increasingly he did it. And I would waltz in and sort of essentially give him a grade on his performance in this essential <laughs> task while I'd been gone. And he finally said, look, you want it done that way? That's great. Come home and do it. But if I'm doing it, I'm doing it my way. And I didn't always agree with his way. Indeed, I have this odd fixation on cleaning up rooms. And he... He thought it was much more important that our sons know all of the Marx Brothers movies. <laughs> and initially I thought, you know, this is just clearly wrong. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. I think that because I was raised by my mother and she was raised by her mother and we have a way of parenting that was handed down. But I don't accept that on the work side. I mean, if a man tells me he knows the right thing to do because, you know, his male boss and his male boss's male boss told him, I say, here's an innovation. And I think I'm equal. And when Andy and I would disagree, I had to finally recognize I might disagree, but who am I to say he's wrong? Right? He is just as competent as I am. He does it differently. Nothing I am saying here suggests they're not gender differences of various kinds. But different is not wrong. So this equality, when we say we have to expect men to be equally caregivers and value them when there are caregivers, requires women to let go of a lot of our own sexism. Because we have to really accept not only that they can do it, of course they can do it. I mean, running a tight ship comes from the Navy. Right? They, they, they can do it, we just, but they may do it differently, and you may not like it. But that's equality just as much as it is equality in the workplace that you get an equal say with the men in your workplace. Okay, so that's a big, big change. 
And many people say, yeah, but men don't want to be caregivers. You know, that's the problem. They, they are happy with this arrangement. Well, that's what I thought too when I wrote my article. And men wrote to me, a large number of men, saying, you think we have it all, but I didn't ask for the system. I didn't ask to be the person who th is told, no, you can't write a novel or no, you can't follow your passion because your role is to support your family. I didn't ask to not be able to go home at five o'clock and see my children and be involved in their lives. I would much rather be able to be as, as engaged with my children or my parents or whoever else you may be caring for as the woman in my life. But this is the role society handed me. And one young man, an African-American man, wrote me and he, he made that argument. And then he said, I know, I know, you're thinking, yeah, well, maybe I want that, but most men don't. And then his next line was, you know, that's what men thought about women in the 60s. And I'm old enough to remember that. Men saying, women don't want to work. <laughs> women like being at home with their children. That's, that's their role. They are happy. They don't want to work. They don't want to be in the rough and tumble of competition. Well, surprise, surprise, right? When you made it perfectly possible for women to do that and valued them for doing it, many of them decided, yes, that's very much what I want to do. And we have no idea what men really want because we are still imposing a gendered role on men that we have, have, we've not eradicated it with respect to women, definitely not, but we're certainly well down the road challenging gen gender expectations uh, for women. So if we're going to do that, we've got to do that for men too. All right, this, at this point, you're thinking, great, she was a professor. Professors imagine new worlds. That's what they get paid to do. There is no way we're getting here. So I'm going to close by talking about what all of you can do and what we must do uh, to finish this business. And the first thing to do is, is to start with all of you, which... which is you can change your own assumptions and the best way to reflect that is to change your language. So here are a couple things all of you can walk out of here doing. First, the next time you meet somebody, do not ask, what do you do? Very simple. Don't ask, what do you do? Ask, what book have you read lately? What great idea did you hear at all about women? What did you do last weekend? What movie have you seen? Anything other than what do you do? And I'm now going to define you and locate you in a social hierarchy by your answer, how high up you are and how much money you make. Because again, this may be particularly an American disease, but it's hard for me to believe that at least some of it doesn't obtain here. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, if you are talking about a man in the workplace with children, Call him a working father. <laughs> I mean it. I mean, why isn't he a working father just as much as we are working mothers? Why? Because we don't think his caregiving is required, so why should we identify him as a working father? But a mother, well, we know she's got to be a mother. She's got to take care of her children. So if she's working, we add that adjective. Working father. And better yet, let's just talk about working parents. Right? Let's just assume if you're a parent, whether a biological parent or an adoptive parent or a constructed parent, whatever, if you are in charge of raising some child, 
you are a working parent. And, let, and I'd go further and talk about working caregivers. For the, of the many of us, and there'll be many more of us as my generation ages, who are caring uh, for their parents. The next thing I would tell you um, to do is don't talk about stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads. Talk about lead parents. Because that's what they're doing. They're not staying at home, sitting there eating bonbons. <laughs> they're working really hard. And they are the lead parent. And sometimes the co-parent, depending how you work it, if there's a, a two-person couple. Uh, but it doesn't matter. I mean, if you can be a single parent, too, you're the lead parent. You may also be the lead breadwinner. Um, the next thing is, when you talk to a young man, as I said, and I started doing this the last year that I was at Princeton, be sure and ask him if he's thought about how he's going to fit together work and family, if that's something on his mind. Just make it as routine a part of the conversation. If you're talking to your sons, treat them exactly as you would your daughters. If you're talking to young men in the workplace or if you're a teacher, just automatically assume that is part of his life. And finally, um, at least on this, I use the term phase three. Phase three is the, there's phase one when you start on, on whatever work you're doing. And then phase two is often more of a caregiving and it doesn't work out exactly in thirds, believe me. But there's, you know, phase two where you're trying to juggle lots of different things. And again, it can be with your parents, not, just, not your kids. Phase three is Hillary Clinton's phase. So she uh, ran for Senate only after her daughter went to college, which for me at least gives me great hope. She ran for Senate, she won, she ran for president, she became Secretary of State, she's running for president again. If she wins, she'll be 70 when she's president and she might work till she's 78 and oh boy, that looks great, right? Many of us, women live longer than men and many of us even now are expected to live till 90. So right, ending at 60 to 65, that's a lot of knitting. <laughs> so think about it for all of us. That's phase three. And if we're lucky, there'll be a phase four and a phase five. Do not assume there's, you know, there's your work and then the, the, your caregiving and then you kind of get, you know, you get as high as you can and then that's it. Phase three. Last thing, uh, what's that? With grandbabies, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I would say for men, again, I, I was talking to somebody last night who said uh, he hadn't seen much of his children, but he was seeing a lot of his grandchildren. So there's, there's a chance for redemption there too. Um, so the last thing I'll just say uh, is, uh, and I won't go through this, but in the book, I also have a whole set of questions that young couples should ask each other. Uh, and they're not just, will you support my career? Because he'll say yes. And, and he'll mean it. He will mean it. But that's not the question. The question is, if I get a promotion, will you move for me? Or will you defer your promotion so I can take mine? That's when it gets tough. When two people have real commitment to the work they do and to their families... The equality is assuming that he will make a trade-off where he at gives something up and maybe spends more time at home so you can advance in your career. And I won't go through the last of those questions. So that's what you can do individually. In the workplace, I've got lots of, there are many, many things you can do in the workplace. I'm going to just give you one. 
which I think is equally important if you are the employee or the, or the manager, which is to not frame this in terms of, certainly not as a woman's issue, never, ever, but as an issue of how can you work more productively given that you have caregiving responsibilities. And we're going to assume all workers, women and men, will have caregiving responsibilities at some point in their lives because there's no woman at home. That used to be the system, right? That's not the system anymore. So men and women will have caregiving responsibilities at some point. And so how you, you frame it as, I think I could do a better job if I had more flexible hours, if I worked from home one day a week, if I came in late on these moments, if I you know, could be set up in such a way that I could telecommute when I need to, whatever it might be, because families don't come you know, on flex time schedules. Uh, but what the point is, this is about I could do a better job if I remove this stress, if I got more sleep, if I, if I knew uh, that I could adjust my schedule to, to really focus on my work, but also take care of this issue. And then you say, and let's try it. Not, you have to do this, but let's try it. Let's try it for three months. Let's agree on metrics to say, am I doing a better job or not? And for the manager, we're all about innovation these days. That's the watchword. The manager has to think, I'm experimenting. You know, this person says they can do a better job. Let me see. So that from the manager's point of view, to say no is to be stuck in mud, anti-innovative, uh, essentially refusing to do something that a worker says you can do a better job. There are lots of other policies. There's something called open work, just like open gov or open data. Uh, there are lots of other, other things I talk about, but I think the most important is to think about this in terms of how all of us are going to be able to do the best work we can when we are also caregivers. And the last thing we have to do is to build an infrastructure of care. And I, Anne said at the beginning, and it's true, Australia has a better infrastructure of care than the United States does. Anywhere but Papua New Guinea has a better structure, <laughs> infrastructure of care than the U.S. does. We have no mandatory maternity leave, much less paternity leave. None. Even in the federal government. None. Means, you know, you, I've talked to young women who said they saved up all their vacation and their sick days to have their first child, but when they have their second, they have no time at all. So... But the deeper issue is we know that for a thriving economy, you have to have a, a physical infrastructure. You need bridges and roads and ports and railroads and airports and broadband. We equally need an infrastructure of care. And that has to include paid family leave. And families have to be constructed however we want to construct them. So it isn't about maternity or paternity or, you know, even the idea that it's kids. It has to be people have got to be able to take time out to care for those who need it and both get some portion of their salary and have their jobs uh, when, when, they, uh, when that period uh, is up. And we need high-quality, professional child care and elder care. Now, this is... A, a policy issue, and I want to read from the Norwegian Minister of Children and Family, who has this radical thought. 
He says, we have decided that raising a child is real work. <laughs> and that this work provides value for the whole society. It is only fair then that the society as a whole should pay for the service. I'll go further. I will say that investing in the first five years of a child's life, children's lives, is the single most important investment a society can make. The single most important investment. Because we now know that those five years, you're not just teaching the child things, you are shaping his or her brain. The neuroscience is very clear. In those first five years, you are determining what that child will be able to learn for the rest of his or her life. Now, if you want a competitive society, you want a secure society, you want a more equal society, you want a healthy society, that investment is the most important investment we can make. And at the other end of life, it is simply a question of what kind of human beings we are. Do we repay the debt to those who cared for us and then care for them? So we need to build an infrastructure of care. We need to pay for it. But we don't just do that as, oh, this is something we're doing to help women. We do that because as a public policy issue, we are investing uh, in our society just as importantly as we're investing in roads and bridges and other things. I'm optimistic. That seems like a lot of change, raising our sons the way we raise our daughters, expecting our sons to be just as involved in caregiving, looking at somebody who says, I'm caring for my mother or I'm caring for my, my son or I'm caring for my spouse or I'm caring for my friend with cancer. And th looking at that person and thinking, you are doing something really important. Not only that, I admire your character and you're learning a lot because uh, care's hard, uh, and, and you learned how to invest in others. That's a big change, but when I was growing up, my mother used to put little vases of cigarettes on the dinner table when she gave a dinner party. Now, if you did that in the United States today, you'd probably get sued. <laughs> it, it, but that's what you did. That was the 1960s, early 1970s. And I was born when there was still Jim Crow, legalized segregation in parts of the American South. And now we have an African-American president. We still have plenty of racism in our society. There's no question about that. But that was only 60 years ago when blacks and whites could not share the same physical space. And I didn't know any women, I knew one woman lawyer, I didn't know any women doctors or judges or politicians or anything else. One woman lawyer. And yet in 2014, um, my, well, 2012, my 14-year-old and I were watching the Democratic Convention and John Kerry was talking. And my son said, who is that? And I said, well, he was a senator. He, ran, he is a senator. He ran for president. And if, if President Obama is reelected, he'll probably be Secretary of State. And my son looked at me kind of like that, and he said, you mean a man can be Secretary of State? <laughs> he wasn't kidding. It hadn't dawned on him that a man could do the job. 
So we've come a long, long way. I think we're about the halfway point. But given how far we've come in a relatively short space of time, if we make up our minds to value not only women, but traditional women's work, and to value it when women do it, and to value it and expect it of men, we can get to full equality between men and women and finish the business of the gender revolution. Thank you very much. I detect a certain enthusiasm for your <laughs> message. Thank you very much for, for laying that out in, in such a lucid and compelling fashion. We're going to have time in a moment for some questions from you. There are microphones down here at the foot of the stairs, um, so do come and get ready. Um, but I'm going to start off by maybe... Not, not, I don't want to challenge that lovely optimism because I think it's the only thing that's going to get us through. But... Part of the issue about revaluing care is also about devaluing work mm. or taking work off its quasi-religious pedestal simply because there is not time for somebody to be the ideal worker and the ideal carer, even if that is being shared sure. between men and women. And it seems to me that that's an obstacle that is quite substantial, that you're really talking about a whole economic system, an ethos, you know, that as you referred to, that we now define ourselves by our work. That's how we see ourselves, that's how we situate ourselves socially. That's why we say, what, what do, do you, you do? do? Rather than where are you from or where do you live or what clan or tribe are you a part of? And... Revaluing care, I mean, I think for anybody who's brought up children or looked after others in that very intensive way, nobody can deny that it's hard, but it's also incredibly rewarding. So people who've had those experiences know and will evangelise about the value of care. But how do we go about taking work off its pedestal without starving to death? <laughs> Uh, well, so let me be clear. I, 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 I love work. I'm not <laughs> suggesting uh, that we starve to death. I also think uh, that one of the great things that the women's movement has accomplished is that we tell our daughters, you need to be able to support yourself. Right? And that's hugely important. We say, you do not want to be in a situation where you are married and the marriage doesn't work or you're just together, regardless, but it no longer works and he or she leaves and you can't support yourself. So I, I believe everybody has uh, the, the, ought to be able to support themselves and the dignity and value that that gives them of having a profession, whatever it is, having a job, whatever it is, that's very important. And I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, devalue work in that sense at all. I do think, um, well, I think a number of things are going to happen. The United States is obsessed at the moment with the future of work. Mm. And it's not because we're thinking about men and women and care. It's because we're thinking about robots. 
Uh, we're thinking about, you know, the, the full digital revolution. We're just at the outset of the digital age. We're about, we're somewhere after James Watt discovered the steam engine, the steam engine, uh, but way before you got to mass production uh, in the industrial age. And so that, and, and many people are worried there won't be enough work. Uh, and that many of the jobs, uh, the, you know, the particularly the sort of mass jobs mm. are going away. So I think we ought to think about that in that context, that care is work too. It is work. It's hugely rewarding, but it's work. It is work that we need society to do for all the reasons we said. And I think you can then say, look, it's not okay to have children and not, and not care for them. It's not okay not to care for your parents if they need it or anybody else. And so that people who put their work ahead of their family at any cost, you start to say, what are your values? Right? Like, like there's some work I understand, you know, you there, there are situations in which you have to do that. I'm not saying you don't. And there are certain level jobs where, yes, you're just making that commitment. You have to do that. But overall, we would say, you know, there are going to be periods of your life where you can put work first, and that's great. And then there are going to be periods of life of your life if you choose to have a family or your family needs you, in which you're going to put work second or you're at least equal. And that that will become what we expect of the people we admire. Mm -hmm. And lest you think I'm completely idealistic, a Finnish CEO said to me, in Finland now, if, you, if men don't take two months of their paternity leave, they lose it. So it's use it or lose it, or you're leaving money on the table. And a Finnish CEO said to me that now when he interviews young men and they haven't taken paternity leave, he wonders about their character. And that's the way we ought to think about it. Scandinavian utopia. Yes, I know. <laughs> I understand. If it wasn't for the climate, we'd all be thinking very seriously. <laughs> I'm not going to monopolise Anne-Marie. There are too many of you with questions here. We'll go to the question here Thank first. Thank you. Um, Anne-Marie, my question is, um, I'm asking you to comment on my experience, uh, which is that I think in our society that male caregivers are overvalued and uh -huh. I also think that male caregivers go up in social estimation when they caregive. And I'll give you a very quick example from my experience. I'm a barrister and I appear a lot as a Crown Prosecutor and my husband and I are extremely uh, great co-parents and he's a successful policeman. Everyone in this audience has seen him on TV many times doing excellent police work. And we decided that I would go into the country and prosecute and um, for three weeks in the school holidays in summer because then he could have our children and it suits our family. Every single one of my male and female friends give him unbelievable admiration for his amazing commitment to our family. I do this all the time and I get no praise. And also, so his value goes up. Everyone thinks he's amazing. He gets compliments and it really pisses me off. Yeah. <laughs> So you are describing what I call halo dad syndrome. Yep. 
Because I've been there too. Uh, when I was a dean and, you know, I would, my husband would show up to pick up the kids, something, of course, I was expected to do every day. He was a halo dad, you know? It's like the halo just was brighter and brighter as he did things. So I, that's absolutely true. It, it coexists, though, with men who go part-time or are lead parents who are even more devalued than women in that setting because their very masculinity is questioned. So both things are true. What I would say is we have to swallow the halo dadism, no matter how mad it makes us, because... <laughs> It is the first step toward thinking a man who's taken his kids for three weeks while you go do something else is cool. Mm. And it's very mm. important that, you know, my husband was willing to do this because one of his mentors had been in this role vis-a-vis -vis his wife. So I think we got to suck it up uh, and, and <laughs> see it as the first signs of positive culture change. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my question is surrounded about choice. If we don't have choice, arguably we're not empowered and we don't have equality. And so my surrounds a controversial one in terms of women, which links to children. I'm the first Australian woman to operate in commission, so I broke a glass ceiling in Australia in my field. And yet I've had my ability to speak for women and from a women's perspective question because I don't yet or may not have children. Hmm. Question not just by federal ministers, but by women because the most meaningful thing I can do is have children. Isn't that a horrible thing if you can't medically or otherwise have children? So my question is, why is it, how do we break that paradigm where caring only matters if it's children? It doesn't matter if it's your aunt who doesn't have children, your stepmother, your grandfather, that you're legally guardian of with dementia and end-of-life care, but that doesn't matter unless it's caring for children. I can't speak for women or we can't speak for each other unless it's caring for children. How do we break that paradigm? So you heard me very carefully say, right? At every turn, I, I said <laughs> caring for children or caring for parents or caring for an extended family member, right? Exactly, the aunt, the grandfather, whoever it is. And, you know, all I can say is we have to keep reinforcing that. I know countless women who don't have children who are, you know, who care for their nieces and nephews in ways that are, are like that or care for their parents or invest as you've invested in public service where, you know, you're investing in your community, you're investing in others by the very work that you do. I think we just have to keep challenging it. The, the good news is... Our societies, the demographics of our societies, you know, in the United States, we're expecting to have 50 million people with dementia by somewhere between 2030 and 2050, right? The, the elder care is going to be front and center in a way that I think is going to help knock that off. Uh, but I do, I agree, it's part of the same idealization of a woman as the mother that we needed to break out of which to begin with. And as I say, in valuing care, we can't reestablish that particular stereotype. Thank you. Thanks.
Thank you. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, it's great to have you out here. HLS, class of 96. Ah, um, got a few others here as well. Wonderful. My question is the exact opposite of this lovely lady's question. <laughs> um, you have a quote in your book that says, men's breadwinning is still so culturally mandated that when it is absent, both men and women are likely to find that the marital partnership does not deserve to continue. Um, Annabelle Crabb's studies showed that that percentage of couples in Australia is about 3% of the total amount of married couples in Australia. I'm one of them. Um, and it is very difficult, and I think for some very traditional Australian men, my husband's ex-army, up here supports everything I does. Go for that scholarship, go for that board role, go for that job, it's fantastic. Down here, it makes them feel like shit a lot of the time. Um, and it's really, really difficult. And I think being a dual citizen and having spent time in both countries, I think Australia maybe even has more cultural um, archetypes of male masculinity than even the US does. Um, and we talk about, you know, you talk about the role models and the social networks and, and I think we are in a vanguard of really courageous men that are helping to make this change, but we're not there yet. Yeah. So for the couples that are trying to survive where we're not there yet, have you got any advice? Which I know is a massive question. I should probably just go see a therapist. But anyway. <laughs> I do because I've lived it and live it. Uh, and my husband wrote an article called Why I Put My Wife's Career First, uh, in which he discusses that. Uh, and so a couple of things. It's interesting that you said your, your husband is ex-military. Yes. So both Andy and I have gotten more letters from men in the military who are in this position than anywhere else. And we think there are a number of reasons. There's duty, there's family values. But I think part of it is these are men who are more sure of their masculinity than many others. They've been in the military. It's sort of the masculine archetype. And what I, this is where I think we have to push it, that the men who do this are the men who are secure enough and strong enough and confident enough in their masculinity that they're willing to break gender roles and that they are like the women of the late 1960s and early 1970s who, when they went into the workplace, were accused of not being feminine. They were called every name in the book, and most of them had to do with a male anatomy. Uh, so, it, because it was, it was you're, you're not feminine. And similarly, men who are doing that now are told they're not masculine, and we need to flip it. We need to say that those women were pioneers for a different version of femininity. So now you can be a CEO and wear, you know, four-inch heels and dresses and, you know, be plenty feminine. In the old days, you know, they had to do it on male terms. Those men today are strong pioneers. And you, we, that's why I said we have to live with halo dadism, because I'll take it, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and, and we need, but we also need to celebrate, and you are seeing it, movie stars who are doing this more, right? And, and if, if I'm talking to people, you know, in the media, essentially you need a campaign to tell the stories of men who are breaking gender roles and supporting their wives, right? He's supporting you in the way you want to be supported. But I, I, I wouldn't lie if I said it's going to be, it was a hard road for women, it's going to be a hard road for men. Um, last thing I'll say is millennial boy, young men raised by working mothers, they're our targets. So you're telling me to find a toy boy, is that your... <laughs> <laughs> Over here. 
Um, hello, my name is Bree. I run an advertising agency that has about 80% women and we're very proud of that. It's part of our, I guess, our unique offering. Um, one of the things that I really struggle with is probably about diversity and it's so unique to us and we're very proud of it, but obviously it's something really important where we feel like we don't want to be seen as being unequal. And how do we really make sure that we kind of bring that equality into the agency? Because um, I think it's really important and I don't want us to feel like we're only leaning to one side, but we should be seen as equal. But it's still really important to make sure that you're focusing and putting something like that on the pedestal. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. I worry about this uh, often at New America because we've got whole departments that are now only women. Right? And I, I find myself pushing on managers there to say, look, I want men. I want an equal distribution. Um, because if you believe in diversity, you believe in diversity in any way, right? You believe it with respect to gender, with respect to skin color, with respect to income. You believe that a more diverse group of people will produce better results. So all I can tell you is you've got to start hiring guys. <laughs> Noel, over to you. No, no, sorry, just Noelle over here. Yeah. No, Noel, oh, you. Okay. No, <laughs> Anne-Marie, thank you so much. Uh, you talked last night about us each being braver, women and men, and but very often we're, in terms of communicating, we, we lack that confidence. And around that table are often just expressing our views on things. I, I'd be interested in your insights and how each of us could... What does that braveness look like? Hmm. Uh, yes, so we heard last night uh, somebody saying that, you know, girls needed to be braver and to take risks, uh, to fail, to adopt, you know, own failure. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the first step is creating what I have recently learned to, is called... Uh, psycho safety or psychological safety, right? And this is, this is work that comes out of how do you work in a team effectively? How do you have difficult conversations effectively? But it's essentially creating an environment in which, you know, whatever you say, you know you're not going to be laughed at. You know, you, you may, there may be a disagreement, but there's not going to be a kind of eye roll or laughing or any of that. Um, and creating that environment for... Uh, men and women both. Uh, and for, uh, you know, for girls, I think it is being willing to, uh, you know, to speak up, uh, to uh, say something that they think is stupid. I mean, how often do you hear, this is where Sheryl Sandberg and I are very aligned. You hear, well, this, I th this may be stupid, but, or, you know, I'm not an expert, but. The first time my husband heard me say, I'm not an expert, but he said, why would anybody listen to you if you just told them that you didn't know what you were talking about? <laughs> so there are lots of things there, but it's equally true for boys. So I, my, my son called me this morning and he had a very, he's taking standardized tests. He's you know, going to apply to college next year. And he'd had a really rough go of it a couple of days ago. And I thought, yes, my label is hypocrite in chief. My ch I'm here in Australia. He is in Princeton, New Jersey, and he's having a rough go. Uh, and, but I talked to him today and I said, well, you know, did your girlfriend come over? And he said, yes. And I said, well, was she okay with the fact you were upset? And he said, mom, it's 2015. Boys, <laughs> boys can be emotional. And I <laughs> 
So, but I think we have to create that safe space equally for men to, you know, I, what I said last night is girls need to be braver. Men need to be able to own their fear. It does not make them any less masculine. It makes them human. Uh, and it gives them the same space to express their emotions. They may cope with them differently. They, you know, we are different in many ways. But we have to create the safety for both genders and anything in between to, to really um, just say what they feel without fear of censure. Now, we're really running down the clock. We've only got time for one more question, and I think you have been waiting longest, so we'll take that one. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so in terms of driving change from the top, how ready do you think your country is for a female leader? <laughs> <laughs> great question. It is a great question. Um, <laughs> so all the voters in my country say they're ready for a female leader. Uh, and, and I do think we are. In other words, I, I do think it is possible for sure. And I think many more... Consciously, there, uh, there's very few voters who would say, I'm not going to vote for a woman. The subconscious bias is still all over the place, right? There are, it's a, the double standard that is applied to Hillary Clinton or Carly Fiorina, but she wasn't in the race long enough. The, you know, they've stopped talking about what she wears every three seconds, which is great, but there's still this kind of you know, she has to be tough, but she can't be too tough. She's got to be ambitious. Obviously, she's running for president, but there are <laughs> all sorts of ways in which that ambition is painted as calculating uh, and negative uh, still. So I, I would say there's something like, I often try to quantify this, 30 to 40% of the coverage, the negative coverage that I think still reflects discomfort with a woman in that role. Uh, but, but I think it can easily be overcome. Uh, I, and it is, I don't think, for instance, the young people who are supporting Bernie Sanders, they're not opposing her because she's a woman. They're, they think they're in a post-feminist world where it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, but it's not, it's not because she's a woman. So I think we are ready. I think it is, um, it is certainly something we can do whether we will do or not uh, remains to be seen, but I, for one, am confident. <laughs> That's a good last question.